Welcome to Spin It, where the worst of times can become the best of times. I'm your host, Stephanie Malik, an award-winning crisis management expert and business consulting strategist. Along with my team of experts at S. Malik Enterprises, I have worked with thousands of high-wealth individuals and businesses over the last 25 years to create customized approaches for crisis management and business consulting to ensure they take their careers, relationships, and companies to the next level. On Spin It, we pursue purpose and passion, aspiring to uncover the true story behind every guest's successes and failures, removing the mystique behind what it takes to be truly successful from those that have actually done it. I'm chatting with executives and entrepreneurs all over the globe to understand how they turned obstacles into opportunities to grow not only themselves, but their businesses. I want to impact and inspire you and as many people as possible, not by blurting out the same old motivational phrases, but with the truth and authenticity behind real success, along with the roadmaps and methodologies it takes to get there. Whether it was a scandal, a broken business model, or simply navigating the noise, we want you to learn from our mistakes. It's all in how you spin it. Today, we'll be speaking with Jeremy Ryan Slate. Jeremy's a former school teacher turned podcaster, CEO, and author. His book, Extraordinary, discusses adversity and how we can overcome it. Jeremy's book also covers how it takes long hours and hard work to be extraordinary. In 2016, he started Command Your Brand, a top globally recognized media firm. It now has over 15 employees and books thousands of podcasts for its clients. Jeremy also hosts Create Your Own Life podcast, which he has been hosting since 2015. At age 19, Jeremy faced an emotional crisis when he was read his last rites. And when he was 24, he again faced an emotional crisis when he watched his mother almost pass away from a stroke. But through how Jeremy spun it, these moments propelled him towards furthering his education, changing his career path, and finally being able to grow his business. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining Spin It. I really appreciate it. I'm super excited to have you on the show and and, um, add a ton of value to the listeners out there. So thank you again. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to be here. Um, When you said you were launching a podcast, I was so honored, honestly, that you wanted me to be one of your first few guests. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've always had so, so much fun, um, you know, just talking about things. So I really want it to be a casual conversation. I really want to just talk about all the new things that are going on with you. But as you know, the podcast is really kind of focused on business and then also to turning obstacles into opportunity. You obviously know I'm a crisis expert and I started the podcast 1000% to be able to have a bigger, um, a louder, a more impactful voice to let people know that they can move through crisis much differently than kind of the old model, if you will. So I was reading and I had no idea about your story when you were 19 years old and you almost passing away. Can you tell me about that and, and walk me through what happened? So, um, in school, I was what you call a gym class warrior. I was the person that like played entirely too hard at everything I did. And after school, we did these football games on the weekend. And like we were like way too over the top. We had like, you know, Under Armour sleeves and like cleats and like, and we would tackle the hell out of each other, but nobody wore pads or anything. So like we'd play these like really crazy football games that were too over the top. And um, I played cornerback. I was pretty fast. So I'd run with the receiver. And then after, if you're going way too hard, you're going to do it like the pros do, which means you backpedaled five yards and you turned to run with the receiver. So I stepped in a drain and I tore uh, my ACL, PCL, and meniscus. 
And like when you have something like that happen, it's kind of so severe you really don't feel it because the adrenaline like kicks in and everything. So I just kind of fell down. I'm like, I can't stand up. And, and I remember thinking in my head like, well, in ESPN, they're always saying when people fall down because of their knees, it's like an ACL. So I'm like, oh no, I really hope I didn't tear my ACL. Uh, ended up being that and like a whole bunch more. I had to have the, like, it's called cadaver ligaments. They take a ligament out of somebody that's already passed and they graft it into, into your joint and then your, your body kind of grows around it and it heals back up. So the surgery is supposed to be pretty easy, but the, and it only takes like 45 minutes, surprisingly, to do all those things. They do it like uh, arthroscopically. So I had a, the anesthesia just really didn't go well. And I found out like well after the statute of limitations expired that I could have like sued the pants off the doctor, but I didn't. So your lungs branch out in what are called like bronchioles or the tubes that go into your lungs. And when they stuck the breathing tube in, they pushed too far and it went into my right lung. So my right lung ex- overexpanded and my left lung collapsed. I still have scar tissue like when I try to swim or something like that on the left-hand side. So I had this problem where like I couldn't breathe. So my oxygen levels were plummeting. You know, they couldn't keep me awake. I was awake and asleep and awake and asleep. They brought in a cardiologist. They brought in all these different doctors to like look at me. So for three days, I was like in and out of consciousness. And it is like the weirdest experience because like you can perceive everything around you, but you're not really awake, if, if that if that makes sense. And yeah, almost like actually, a twilight effect. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, yeah. But you're like, you're there, but you're not. So you can you could sense everything. I know my parents were really upset. Like it just wasn't a good situation. And they actually brought in the family priest to give me last rites. And you know, three days in, they finally got my blood oxygen level up enough because um, I found out later on it was because they blew my lung up, which they, once again, didn't tell my parents because we could have sued the pants off of them. But this really put me in a situation where, like, they told them, my parents, like, well, we don't know what's wrong and we don't know if he's going to make it. So that's kind of what happened. And the weird thing is, like, when something like that happens, people are always like, well, my life changed and I knew what I wanted to do. Like, I'm a fitness buff, so I remember just wanting, like, a bagel with cream cheese. Like, I was just, like, so excited to, like, have that and get out of the out of the hospital and do that. So, like, it didn't really change my life at all. It wasn't, like, a pivotal, life-changing moment. The thing that actually did it for me was at when I was 24, my mom had a really bad stroke. And, you know, she's lost our language skills, used to the right side of her body and things like that. So that was the thing that actually really, really impacted me. And I think it's a selfishness thing. It was, you know, when it's you, especially when you're 19, what's going to happen to me? I'm invincible. When it's somebody else, it really makes you look at things differently. A million percent. Like literally you can, you see the mortality. This is your mother. This is somebody who is by your side. And then, and then all of a sudden. Yeah, I was a bit of a mama's boy. Yeah. I can't, I, you know, I, I can't, I, I'm an only child. So like, I am like super, super close with my parents. So that was like earth shattering, you know? Oh my gosh. And, and, and so Jeremy, how is, does she still have no language skills? Is she still like, where is she now? Yeah. She has something called acute global aphasia, um, which means she can like, take in everything like she can read she can understand but when she tries to talk to you or write or anything like that it's either scribbling or they're words that don't really make sense or things like that so that's there's just no outbound language skills it's all like inbound that's amazing so let me ask you a question how do you deal with that with the girls so Addie, uh who's our, our two-year-old she plays a lot with her grandmother, like a lot. So our, my, my mom comes and like stays over our house like once a week. And um, they play a lot. The thing we've had to work with a little bit, and this is, she's a two-year-old. So it's kind of the way things are. She's realized that grandma can't tell her no. 
So she's tried to take advantage of her in some ways. So we've had to kind of really back her up in situations like that. But they play really well. You know, she comes over and hangs out a couple times a week and things like that. So it's it's gone well there. What an incredible bond, though. I mean, you know, we've had we've had similar situations where we've had somebody who has maybe been, you know, mentally disabled or we've had somebody who, again, is paralyzed and not able to use their vocal box. And they're a part of the family and the kids don't understand. And they're trying to get feedback from that person. And it's just more facial expressions and more like like touch, you know, opposed to actually verbal verbally affirming something. So that's amazing that you guys are doing that. Yeah, she has like a few words. Like she can say like honey and things like that, which can be stressful at times because when she calls that, everybody thinks they're being called. So like there's like a, a a few things she can say, which is at least helpful. And the problem is, is like yes means no and no means yes sometimes and things like that. So it's it's a constant figuring it out and managing thing. There's not kind of like one way we do it. Wow, that's amazing. And it's amazing that you're there to support your dad too. Like I know he's a, a tremendous support for you. Yeah, they're getting ready to retire now. My dad's 67 and uh, he's somebody too. Like he didn't finish high school. He went back later and got his GED because he tried to go pro in baseball and he had some like, he had some arthritis that hit him. He was a, he was a pitcher and he was only 5'9". So like, and he was throwing high 90s, but your body breaks down fast when you're short and you don't have that kind of leverage. So he 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 got into the minors, didn't really go much further than that and had to kind of figure out like what to do next. So he's somebody that started the machine shop at a company, built his way all the way up to management of that company. And now he's finally getting ready to retire. So I've been kind of helping them figure everything out. And uh, they're getting ready to move to Florida in the fall. They just bought a place in Largo. So they're, they're excited about that. That'll be great for you guys. That's wonderful. Yeah, I can go stay with grandma and grandpa. In, in, yeah, in the exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're like, um, I'm going to do my podcast from there. <laughs> so you're talking about your dad. I'm going to go off script for a minute. Do you think becoming an entrepreneur was an eight or did you think that you, you think it was in your blood or do you think that you had to actually grow into, Hey, I want to make this my own and I need to figure it out. Or did you always want to do something on your own? You know, there were flashes of that because at the same time, like I love my dad dearly. He is the hardest working human being I've ever met, but he is not an entrepreneur at all. Like he's just, he's just not. He will, you know, he's always been like the company man type. He will work hard. He will, you know, make sure everybody else gets things done. If he doesn't know how to do something, he'll learn how to do it. But he never really understood like owning and running a business. You know what I mean? Like the first few years of me running a business, he was kind of freaking out that I wasn't gonna be able to pay my bills. And there were times I weren't, uh, but I didn't ask him for money. I figured it out other ways. So that initially, there wasn't really an influence there in that way. I had a paper route when I was a kid. I, from the time I was 11 until the time I was 17, I started with 80 customers. Um, I had 280 by the time I ended it. And uh, I'd make like five to seven grand a year like selling newspapers, which is wild. So I had that whole thing, which I kind of managed, but I, I put that away. And I ended up going to school for my master's in ancient history because I thought like, hey, I wanted to teach or whatever, which is kind of interesting because I feel like in that way, I, I borrowed my mom's dream and didn't really explore my own. So it wasn't until like really having, you know, that bedrock of what I wanted to do shattered. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm in my mid twenties. I don't have a whole lot of risk right now. I'd been with my fiance at that time, who's, who's now my wife. We've been together for about three years. So I didn't have a ton of responsibilities. So I was kind of willing to explore things a little bit at that point in time. It's, there were flashes, but there wasn't really, there wasn't really this idea that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. It was kind of 
all right, this kind of stinks because I was teaching high school at that point in time. I was not very happy doing it, working 80 hours a week. And cell phones were like, smartphones were new. So like the whole, my whole day was kids trying to figure out how to piss me off and get me on camera. Like that was my whole day, all day long. So like, it just was miserable. And the tough thing too is like, I've always looked young. So like, I always looked like I was a student. So like that, there was no separation there in that way. So it made it really hard for them to respect me. So I just couldn't do that for much longer. So I I wanted to try and find something else. My wife saw a network marketing presentation, which I don't know what that was. I thought it was gonna be like a multimillionaire next week. It didn't happen. But it was kind of that first thing to like get me started and start me looking for something else. And I went through a lot of different things till I figured out what was good for me. But it wasn't initially like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be an entrepreneur. It was, I had to learn how to, not be what I had been trained my whole life to be. Right. And so like when I was reading all these things about you and I looked at, you know, you really, you come out, you're very vocal that you don't ever use your master's degree. You're very vocal that. I I do when I travel, I'll, I'll take that back. I do when I travel because, because here, here's the interesting point about that is any place we go, I know the full history of it and I can read ancient languages. So my wife loves it because like, I'm like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll tell her stories about this and that. And I can, you know, read inscriptions and stuff. So like I use it then, but like going to college for six years to do that isn't really that worth it. You're like <laughs> poor ROI. Yes. Not, not very good. <laughs> that's great. Okay. So that, that, that's interesting about the entrepreneurship. So when you talked in your, you're interviewing a ton of people on your podcast, you're involved in a bunch of different things, Jeremy, do you, so, so for me, obviously in being a crisis expert and a business consultant, I often have to deliver bad news. So I often have to deliver, maybe an entrepreneur comes to me for executive coaching or entrepreneurship coaching. Okay. And then they go, I have this idea and it's going to be this. And they show me their model and everything else. And in my head, I'm like, Oh gosh, that was done like three years ago. And how come we don't know your competition or your market better? And inside I'm like, don't say it out loud. Don't say it out loud. You know, I, I know that this is one of the things that you and I have highly aligned on is, is delivering this information and being very, very direct. Have you had to do this with a guest or in your business dealings to say either, so what, who cares, or it's irrelevant? Like we've had to do that in like getting clients set up because everybody thinks that their thing is the greatest thing ever, especially in the sales process, because they, they think that like media just comes and finds you. And you have to get them to realize, like, it's the positioning you create. It's the differentiator you have. It's things like that. Like, media just doesn't cover you because you exist. There has to be a reason. So I, th- I feel like that's one of the biggest areas there is. With guests, I f- kind of see it as my job to get that information out of them. It's not really their job to come and supply it. It's my job to find out how to get that interesting information out of them. So in, in that way, I don't see it. But definitely with clients, I see it. It's They have to understand, you know, you don't just get big and then one day somebody notices you. There's very few people that ever happens to. And it's constantly creating the image, constantly gathering the media pieces, writing pitches, getting it out there, telling people you exist. Because here's the thing, like bad reviews and bad press come so much easier than, or easier than good press. So you have to constantly be crafting and building your image and getting out there and getting seen and telling people what you're doing writing press releases, pitching TV channels, like doing things like that constantly. It's it's not just this thing of, oh, you know, Stephanie finally built a big enough business. Let's write an article about her. Like it, it just doesn't, but people have an idea that's how it works. People don't realize that even a lot of their news, especially on a local level, is a PR package. 
Somebody paid for it somewhere, you know, whether it's a new drug that's coming out and they're going to tell you all about it. Well, yeah, because their PR company paid for that spot um, and it's really kind of more of a sponsored read. So it's, I think part of it is people just don't understand how the media world works. Do you know what I mean? I, I know exactly what you mean. And in fact, again, like you and I have spoken about, it's one of, it's, if people, when people have me on their podcast and they say, what's the biggest failure that you've ever had? And I'm like, good God, that's a series. Like, I mean, that's not a podcast. That's like a, you know, that's a mini series. Well, that's like when people ask like, what's the best advice? And it's like, well, there's probably several, you know what I mean? It's, it's so hard to say like one thing, like life isn't a pivotal moment. No, for sure. And then, and then, but, but one of the things, Jeremy, that really is, a standout for me is you're a thousand percent right. I, I was so crushed on how could I be so successful outside of online? How could I be? I mean, I wrote, I've written over a billion dollars in deals and, and good ones, solid ones, strategic alliances, sales, you know, like I, every type of business deal. I've done such strong business deals. I've walked away from, Hey, you know what? This probably is not a good time and I don't want to burn the relationship. Let's, you know, let's think about doing this later on. And I think I believed in my head that I didn't need to do exactly what you said. I didn't need to create an online persona. And quite frankly, I didn't want to be part of the noise. So I stayed quiet and I was like, I'll help and I'll impact and I'll engage with those who want to, but I'm not going to go out there and be like, pick me, pick me. I'm just, I'm just not that type of person. But it's even, it's not just an online persona either. Like I think for some reason people think like, the internet's the only thing, but they forget about print. They forget about magazines. They forget about TV. They forget about radio. They forget about all these other things. Like you need to be constantly gathering those things all the time. Like, especially on a local level, which is where most people totally drop the ball. Everybody is the member of a small pond somewhere. Figure out what it is. Those things are so much more attainable. We have a small weekly newspaper that goes to every house in our county and nothing happens here. So when you write a press release, they print it word for word with your title and images and everything else. And they also have an online version, which means you're getting backlinks. So like you need to constantly be gathering these things. And like online is not the only thing. Like, yeah, you got in Forbes sometimes, but like those are usually no follow links, which means they don't even give you backlinking power. So like you have to understand there's this whole other world out there and traditional media has been out there for a long time. And sorry, I cut you off, but like, I just feel like that's an important thing for people to get. Oh, for sure. No, no, no. I, I agree. And, and again, like I said, it was people like you who asked me really hard questions that you were like, okay, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? And it's, it's truthfully, it's, it's humbling because I am the, I'm the problem. You know, I'm the solver. I'm the fixer. I'm the one that comes in and comes up with a solution. And I really hadn't done that on my own. You're right. It is. It's not just online. You're right. It is TV. You're right. It is radio. It is, it is print. It's so many different things. And I just didn't truly know, Jeremy, what I didn't know. And so this last four years has been so incredibly empowering, but also humbling in how new stages of business actually work and how to kick them off and how to partner properly and, and what press and media really is because I don't think I had a great understanding until recently. So thank you for that point. Okay, let's switch it up a little bit. What advice would you give right now to somebody who's going to be entering into the college years or deciding on college or deciding to kind of go out there and get experience? How would you tell them to select or choose a job? Well, there's a couple different things I would look at here. Unless you want to be a lawyer or a doctor or something that requires an advanced degree, probably not necessary to go to college. I feel like college has kind of become like high school 2.0. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, so now people have to get a master's degree to stand out from people that went to undergrad. So I, I feel like that's really an issue. 
I, I think the the major thing that needs to change in the education world is there used to be a thing called apprenticeships, and it happens now and then with internships, but an apprentice would work under somebody for a period of time so that they could learn that craft, but it was also a period of discernment. Like, do you really want to do this? Do you really want to? F- so I think that's something that needs to happen between high school and college, and you kind of decide, okay, do I want to go to a trade school? Do I want to go to a tech school and learn how to code? Do I want to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it may be? I think there needs to be something else because to ask a kid at 17 or 18 years old, like, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? That's so hard to figure out because who's to even say the job you want will even exist or will even be valuable? Like, you don't learn, you learn concepts, but you don't learn the marketing techniques that are out now by going to school for marketing. Do you know what I mean? So like, there's so much better ways to do that. And even at the same time, the college system needs to be looked at because it's so bloated because the money's so easily available. It's just a really, really big problem. My, my whole thought process on it, and, and, I, and I really hope somebody figures out how to do this, is change the way they're funded. You would pay 15% up front, so at least you got some skin in the game. And then the university would make a percentage. I don't know if it's 5% or 15% or whatever it is, or your first five years out of school of your income. So then, you know, you would be, have some skin in the game because you had to pay some money up front and you'd pay substantially less, but they'd want to actually educate you so you can do something and produce something because that's how they're going to make more money. So I think we really need to take a look at this whole world because there's so much money available. The price of college keeps going up and up and up and up and up. And it doesn't mean that kids are coming out better educated. If anything, they're coming out worse educated and with ideas that aren't useful. Do you know what I mean? Like there's like... People with liberal arts degrees, like what do you what do you do with that? But but Jeremy, but even to your point, even people that are coming out with marketing degrees, even people that are coming out with digital degrees, even people that are coming out with, I mean, you know, so my kids, three of them are or one of them is still in, he's a junior in college, and the other two are out. I mean, one of Devin's biggest things is she got out and she was horrified. She was like, I have a I have a degree in marketing and media and communication. And she goes, I'm out of school and nothing is relevant now. My my wife went to school for PR and nothing in her degree is useful anymore because everything she had to figure out, she had to figure out by doing it because those things actually don't exist anymore. Right. And so if you look at your process, exactly what you said, and again, this is a whole other, I'd love to have you back and talk about just this because oh, this education is, something is my biggest gripe with the entire world. So don't even get me started. <laughs> so it's, it's literally, I, I'm like, why do we teach our children? Like our husbands are still at war. Why are we factory teaching our children with rote memory opposed to actually hardcore critical thinking skills? So I completely understand. So if you look at the way that it is right now and you look at what exactly what you said, what are we turning out and what are they competing with? What jobs are they competing? with, they get there and they're like, this sucks. I don't have any desire to be a media manager. I don't have any desire to do Marcom. I don't have any desire, but you look at their whole entire process. And this really hit me hard, Jeremy, when Devin was just getting out of college and they took her through an entire interview process. So they had her come in to actually practice and role play interviewing for like large companies like Accenture or PwC or Nike. Okay. And she was coming home and she was like, Hey, can I practice? And I was like, Oh my God, don't ever, like it was the, it was literally like kindergarten 101. Nobody would ever say those things and you would never talk about those things. And this is what a really prestigious college is turning out. No, thank you. Mm-mm. No. Well, you, you know, what's funny is I, I actually learned how to like interview for a job and I, I've been told that I, that I'm a good interview when I interview for a job. I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe they're just blowing smoke up my ass. I don't know. But the, I, I learned 
had to do that, honestly, from my dad because he's hired so many people. So like I, he's, he's, this is what somebody that is bad would say. This is what somebody that is good would say. This is what you would do to prepare. I think, honestly, like you should be talking to business owners to figure out what they want to hire, who they, because I, I've interviewed some people in job interviews that I'm like, why would you show up dressed like that? Do you want this job? And why would you ask that question? Why would you tell me your biggest achievement is graduating school? I should hope so. You enrolled. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, it's gosh, that's an like, achievement. Like, that's an achievement. You set out to do something. Achieve? I should hope you finished that. You paid $50,000 a year for it. Right. Or at least your parents <laughs> did. That's awesome. Yeah, your your yeah. parents or the government did. Somebody did. Somebody did. Okay, so so you were super aligned again on college as far as, unless you're a doctor, a lawyer, or something like that, where you need the hardcore skills as far as, you know, cutting people open and those type of things. Yeah. Well, and, but also if you go to an Ivy League school, I will say that prestige and those connections are more valuable than the education. So that's something to think about too, because those are clubs in themselves. You know, if you went to Harvard, if you went to Yale, if you went to one of those schools. Yeah, the alum is impeccable. Yeah, like I, I did some time at New College Oxford. So like I have been able to pull on that. So like when you have, when you do have a prestigious name, that's valuable. I will say that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think alumni is absolutely amazing because once they see that you went to that school, but I would say as far as anything else, I can't tell you, you know, I mean, I'm I'm not going to go in and tell you the colleges, but there are a lot of colleges that I've interviewed people and I'm like, we really need to check if this guy actually really graduated or this girl really graduated because I am really nervous and scared about what this looks like for our future. So I hear you on that. Okay. So you, you painted houses, you really got down and dirty. You really actually, you, you just weren't like handed this silver spoon and like handed this life. You really did work to figure out where you were. Well, because at the same time, like I came from parents that worked hard. You know what I mean? My, when my dad made, when my dad finally hit $50,000, that was a big deal. Like that was like the most money I'd ever heard of, but continue. I'm sorry. Do you remember, do you remember when he hit the 50,000? Did you hear about it later or do you remember it in the household? Do you remember what it sounded like and what it felt like for him to get to that level? You know, I don't quite remember it. It was around 2000, 2001. Like that was a really, really, really big deal for him. So I do remember that. But I'll, I'll say at the same time is I feel like jobs like that, like, like, cause like I said, he worked in a company that they do like uh, injection rubber molding and stuff like that. So like he knows some stuff about polymers that blows my mind, but he started in the lowest level in the company to, to really building himself up. So I've learned a lot about it that way. But at the same time, like you mentioned, the other the other jobs that I've done, you know, painting houses. I work for an old school painter that you did everything by hand, four inch brushes, wooden 40 foot ladders, hand scraping. And these were like old Victorian homes where you got to paint them seven colors on the outside. So like I, I've learned, number one, like a lot of really good skills. There are certain things that you know, maybe I should hire somebody to do it at my house, but I know how to do it and do a good job at it. And I enjoy doing it. And those things are just nice to be able to say, hey, I did that. So that's one part of it. But the other thing is like, I've learned what hard work is and I've learned how to work hard. So at the same time, you balance out that hard work with learning how to work smarter. So that's the one thing that I, I've really tried to take to that is just because it's hard work doesn't make it valuable. What it's producing and the method you figure out to do it is what makes it valuable. So there, there's, there's learning points in that by really, really, really doing hard work and at the same time saying like, oh, dear God, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. Like that also taught me those kind of things. 
So while we're talking about hard work, obviously we've talked about this a lot, how times have changed, okay? We've talked about how we were as kids. We talked about really truly becoming industrious when we were children, okay? We've talked about that. How are you gonna do that with the girls? How are you going to really, really develop their innate ability to work hard and to produce something that'll make them happy? Well, I think I told you we moved recently, right? Mm-hmm, you did. Okay, so we bought a small farmhouse on like four acres. So it's not a lot of land, but we have a pig. We, we just got chickens yesterday. So um, her job, our, our two-year-old's job, which was actually just presented to her yesterday, is she's supposed to go get the eggs and, you know, handle the chickens and things like that. So things like that, I think, are immensely valuable. At the same time, one thing that I don't think a lot of parents do that we've tried to do is when you're working on something and a kid comes over and they want to help, but you know they really can't help. Like there's not much they can do about it. A lot of parents, I say, thinks, you know, would say to them, no, you can't help here. Kids want to contribute. And I think when you can teach them to contribute early on, they'll take that with them the rest of their life. So we find something about it they can contribute in. Even if it's not really even helpful at all, they feel like they're doing something. They feel like they're helping. So I think it's important to figure out like what is that thing? Like, hey, daddy, can I help you hammer that? No, but there's a really important job. If you can hold these nails and hand them to me as I need them, that'll really help me. So we've tried to figure out like what part of things she can do so she feels like she's contributing because I think a lot of parents don't let their kids contribute their whole life and then they get to be teenagers and they don't want to contribute because they've been taught not to contribute and they're trying to figure out how to flip that script. So, you know, I don't want to sound overconfident. I am a young parent. You know, we are early in this game. But for me, that's that's how I'm trying to do that. Yeah, I think that even I think you're ahead of the game, Jeremy, and just in just being able to actually think about it. There's a lot of people that I talk to, obviously, with our kids. The oldest one is 26 and the youngest one is 11. So we've gone through a lot of that. And, and you know, the do, there's not a do over, but just actually being able to have a sort of a plan or even a conversation being like, hey, this is important to be able to contribute. So I think that's great. Because they want to be a part of things. Like yesterday I was building, I had the nail gun out and I was building chicken stairs yesterday for the chickens so they can get in the, the roosting beds. And uh, she's like, daddy, those are chicken stairs? I'm like, yeah, I need you to measure all these for me and make sure they're this long. So when, when I nail them on, they're the right size. So like it's, it's just really important to keep them involved in things because they're little and they can't contribute a lot. But if they feel like they are, they feel like they're kind of contributing to the motion, that's a really big deal. It is. And it gives them their own piece of safety and, and commitment to the family. So I think that's amazing. Yeah. If, if you want to make somebody a criminal, tell them they can't produce everything or tell them they can't produce anything and just give them stuff. You'll make them a criminal very quickly. And I don't mean like a criminal like the go out and steal things. I mean like somebody that doesn't exchange with others. That, that's how you create that situation. Zero emotional currency. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so you were a teacher by trade after painting houses. And now you are doing amazing things with the podcast. Talk to me about the transferable skills. What did you learn from teaching? What did you learn from your degree that you maybe use now in teaching others? Because you really do, Jeremy. I, I was listening a few days ago to, to one of your podcasts. You really do ask the hard questions. You really do kind of get down to things other people just don't talk about. And I, I just appreciate that a lot. Well, I don't think that there's, I guess the biggest thing is I learned how to not be boring. I was a boring teacher. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I was the guy like, all right, let's break out the projector. I have 150 slides for you. So, like, I learned how to And everybody not... said, yay, a slide No, projector. they would, like, throw stuff at me and, like, <laughs> stuff like that. So, like, I learned how to not be boring. I think that's one part of it. Because at the same time, 
I became a teacher because I like to learn. And when you look at it, those two things actually don't align with like you think they do. You know what I mean? Because you're going from doing one thing to doing another thing. And in actuality, I think what's made me a, a good teacher now is I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to share that learning with someone. I think when you kind of sit up there like I'm the orb and I know everything, like it's really hard to get other people excited about that. But when you're excited and interested in, in learning right along with them, I think that's the difference is I went back to what I really enjoyed. Like I don't recommend anybody do a college degree like I did. I took classes because I was like, oh, that sounded cool or that sounds interesting. Like you don't graduate that way, but somehow I right. do. Um, you're like, my, you're like, I, you're on four different tracks and you have no yeah. idea what's going on. You're like, but that entrepreneur 101 or that international leadership studies, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, um, I, I, uh, I went to Seton Hall university and they had this like scale where if you took 12 credits or, or 18 credits, it was the same price. So I just took 18 every semester and then just took a whole bunch of classes because of that. I ended up getting to my senior year and they're like, you know, you're like two classes short of a triple major, right? So I ended up double majoring because like I couldn't finish the triple because one course was a prerequisite for another and I just didn't have enough semesters left. But like because of that, like I love to learn. I've always been very, very interested in that. You know, whether they're subjects I agree with or disagree with, I want to find out about them. I want to know about them. So I, I think it's really important. So when I've transferred that and getting back to that, I think that's why the show has been successful because I'm trying to actually learn things I'm interested in and trying to also interview from the viewpoint of what would somebody listening to this want to know? I think that's, that's important too. Yeah. And I think that that's the biggest thing I've taken away from you is it was hard to want to start the podcast because I, I cared more about learning. I cared more about being that constant curious student. I cared more about expanding my skills. I cared more about what I could offer to others. And so I was like, I don't really want to host. I don't, and then, and then, it really switched for me in our last conversation when you were like, yes, but how many people want to listen because of your experience and how many people want to actually, how many relationships do you have access to that other people may not have access to? And then that's when it kind of actually started changing for me, Jeremy. And I was like, you know what? I can learn and do this at the exact same time. And I think, I think to be completely transparent, I think it's one of the things that upset you know, I work with a lot of white collar criminal attorneys and I back them up on a lot of things they say. So we're in a room and we're having a conference and we're trying to decide strategy. And we're trying to decide next steps, but I want to learn all along the way. So I'm like, okay, wait, walk me through that. Talk to me about that leveling. Talk to me about that sentencing. Talk to me about that cooperation agreement. Talk to me. And I, we go through different aspects of the case and, and how a judge will see it. And in, in five years, it's been pivotal because I've been able to show so many people that there's a different way in moving through the obstacle and turning it into an opportunity, whatever that looks like. And I feel like that's one of the things that you've done so well in moving from teaching into entrepreneurship with the, with the podcast. Well, because I think at the same time, like you said, it's just you want things to make sense to you. So I think when you question things like that, it really takes you a long way. Like I was a, I was a theology major in school. So I was always like the, the, the kids that the, the priest didn't want to like ask questions of because I'd ask all the questions that they didn't have answers to. So like for me, I, I've always been interested in like wanting to understand how things work, you know, wanting to understand why we do this thing we do. And I think when you question like that, you're actually questioning for understanding. And I think that it's like you said, that is the difference. Like when you really want to understand something and have a full conceptual understanding of it so you can use it and understand it and not be effect of it. 
Like a lot of business owners will say, okay, well, I'm just going to hire somebody to do that because I don't know how to do it. And I don't want to know how to do it. Well, here's the problem. That's how you get screwed. You get screwed by like, you, you don't have to do everything in your business, but you should understand and have a cursory understanding of how everything in your business works so that you make the right decisions, right? Because you don't know how to fix a situation or hire somebody else or whatever it may be. You're asking the right things in an interview. So it's just really, really important to, to try and understand things or, or try and look at things for the actual understanding of them and not just, you know, okay, you got this, whatever. Well, and I think to expand on that a little bit, I think that you make that so clear whenever you're, when you're interviewing people. So one of the biggest things that I've taken away from this, Jeremy, is um, I always, you've, you've heard me say this, I don't really listen to respond and it kind of pisses people off sometimes. I truly listen to understand because I want to understand. It doesn't necessarily have to be my philosophy. I don't have to agree with it. I don't have to condone it, but I, I want to understand. I want to get how it works. And so when you talk about this, it's funny. I remember meeting somebody on an airplane and I said, they were explaining something to me and I was like, oh my gosh, that's fascinating. And he said, that's your only response. And I said, I, and I, I was just blank. I said, oh my gosh, I wasn't asking to argue. I wasn't asking to, to combat. I was actually asking because I was truly interested in understanding what your perspective was. Well, people get defensive though, when you do things yeah. like that, because you oh, find yeah. out they don't actually understand some of the things that they're talking about or saying or, or whatever. Like I find this a lot in talking like politics with people because they just say things because they hear other people parroting them. They don't like get definitions or look things up or understand like, you know, why we do this or, you know, so it's, it's really interesting and people get super, super defensive when you question something and they don't actually know the answer. And it's, it's kind of interesting where things go when that happens. Well, and the, th the weird thing is, is about me and about you is if somebody asks me, I'm like, oh gosh, you know what? I'm not sure, but let me, let me go check that out and then get back to you. Like, let me, you know, like it's, it doesn't feel offensive to me. It doesn't feel like I'm skirting but some something. some people like feel like that takes away from authority of them when, when they have to like look something up. Do you know what I mean? Like you've, you've, you've seen it. Like they, they feel like it takes away from their authority or knowledgeableness or reliability if they have to look something up. No, to me, it makes you more valuable because you can then look at something, interpret it and figure out how to use it. Well, not only that, but I also think that you're building credibility and trust and you're, you're customizing whatever your solution is for that other person. It's just not like a jig, giant stamp. And, and the last thing I want to say about this is you're completely right. I just had this conversation with my company not too long ago. And I said to them, I said, I'm not telling a media person to be in finance. I'm not telling products to go into service. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying that everybody should understand how it works. I'm not saying it's going to be your lifelong job or your lifelong dream, but one of the biggest things that I tell everybody, and I've told my kids and I've told my kids' friends is, how do you know what you want to do by doing a ton of things that you don't want to do? Well, no, it's, and that's when I go back to the idea of apprenticeships. Like, you should do some stuff for a while and figure out what you like to do, what you don't like to do, and things like that, rather than just, all right, I know it, let's do it. Because you're going to find that there's very few people that are going to know that, first of all, but at the same time, you're, you're going to be relying on bad information sometimes. You know what I mean? And I think that's what really, really happens. What makes you love podcasting? Well, because I listened to him from like a long, long time ago. Like, do you know who Adam Curry is? He used to have the awesome hair on MTV. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so Adam Curry still has a podcast to this day called it. And he's actually the podfather, by the way. He's the guy that like invented podcasting along with Dave Weiner. And he, I was introduced to his podcast called The No Agenda Show back in 2009 by my college professor that looked like Neil Patrick Harris. And he is the funniest human being I've ever met. And we're still friends to this day. And this podcast, they basically take clips of the news 
and they make fun of it and try and figure out what's happening. Like it's very, very, very funny about like how they look at it. It kind of makes the world seem a whole lot less scary. So that was kind of the first way that I like got into podcasting because it was really, really interesting. And back in that time, I'm also like, I do a lot of audiobooks. Like when I was in high school, I read A Tale of Two Cities as an audiobook where I played an entire Madden dynasty. So like I really like audiobooks a lot. So the early days of podcasting too was not just content like that, but it was a lot of like books that are in the public domain. So I think like Lieberbox is one of the first big companies and stuff like that. So like I just really like enjoyed audio content. And then at the same time, I grew up on like Paul Harvey and stuff like that. So like radio has always been a big part of my life too. It's, we've always had like ABC radio or something playing in my house. And now the rest of the story. So I was like, just going to say that. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> and that little boy grew up to be Ronald Reagan. <laughs> like, so like for me, that's always been interesting and it's always been intriguing. And I really like the radio aspects of it. And that's why when I started a podcast, I started as audio only because I really like that aspect of things. Okay, that, that's really good. Now tell me, what are the top three mistakes that you see new podcasters making or that you see experienced podcasters continue to make? I think the biggest one is too little preparation or too much preparation. Like I was on a show not long ago where the host goes on and we start recording. He goes, so what are we going to talk about today? I'm like, I don't know. Tell me, man, you're the boss. So like, I think they're trying to like, rather than create something valuable and something interesting and something helpful, they're trying to be Joe Rogan. Do you know what I mean? And I, I really like Joe's show. I'm interested in it. Not every episode, but a decent number of episodes. And I think because of that, they're, they're thinking they can create that type of popularity, not realizing like how much work goes into that. So I think you don't have to be a journalist. Like that's not really the point of this, but at the same time, have some structure, have some good ideas, have some thoughts and be able to run the conversation in a way that's valuable to other people. So I think that's one really big thing. Another thing as well, I think it's just a nerd point, like just having a decent microphone, like is super important. And that doesn't mean like, hey, you have to have like, you know, the, the Shure SM7B or the MV7 or something like that. But just like something that sounds good, like get yourself a Yeti or a Blue Snowball or something like that. Like that's important. And also make sure the room you're in has at least an area carpet or something like that to have to absorb the sound or it's going to bounce around. So like that's listenability is one of the biggest reasons you're going to lose somebody in a podcast. If it sounds like you're, you know, in a trash compactor, R2-D2 is not going to save you. You have to really figure out like what are you going to do about this situation? Got it. Those are really, really helpful, especially since obviously I started mine. I love your comment about too much or too little preparation because... Well, too little is too much as well, right? Like I, my first podcast, I didn't, I was nervous. So I like had 67 questions for people and it would just, that feels like an interrogation because you're like, all right, next question, next question, next question. Right. Well, and then to your point too, they can go a minute or they can go 45 minutes. And so... Absolutely. So it's actually funny because you obviously know I'm an over-preparer and I've prepared for both of your shows significantly and we've used absolutely nothing that we've prepared for. <laughs> That's funny. But I, I'll tell you what, interestingly enough, I got rave reviews on your your last interview where we had no preparation for it. But it, it see, but that's the difference as well. Like people I know I can do that with. Like one of my friends, uh, Dr. Jason Dean has been on my podcast like four times and he'll come on and we'll just riff about things because we know each other that well. But when you're having people on that you don't know often, you do have to have that preparation and things like that. So what is your one, and I know there's a lot because we've talked about it, same with me, okay, but what is one of your most pivotal failures that you've been able to turn from 
I mean, significant, okay? Like a significant obstacle into an opportunity or something that was an obstacle that turned into almost a blessing, if you will. What is one thing that you know that you could share with our audience today? Honestly, like how this company started. I, I had originally, you know, when I started my podcast, trying to figure out how to make money, I started a company that produced podcasts. And I had a uh, person approach me about, well, we should figure out like how to actually run PR programs around like getting people on podcasts. And I initially was like, no, that's not such a good idea. Like I'm going to make less money. I don't know how to do it, blah, blah, blah. And then we ended up actually teaming up and, and starting a company. And we did very, very well at it for about nine months. And, you know, then things kind of went south and we don't talk anymore for legal reasons. But, um, <laughs> you know, like I'm I learned that. a lot. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, we have all these like different things we signed and, you know, like, you know, non-defamations. And so anyway, but like actually looking at that, it was something that scared the heck out of me, something I think didn't think that was going to work well. And we've now figured out how to expand that. And we're we have a bigger team than we had doing that. I had an army of one, which is me doing that. You know, now we have uh, 16 people on our team at this point in time. You know, we were up 71 percent in revenue last year. This year, we've already passed last year's revenue. So it's it's a different situation because I was willing to just kind of confront something that looked a little scary. That's awesome. That's amazing. And and again, like I said, you've been one of the, the most pivotal and the biggest reasons why I chose to do this because of how- I really appreciate um, that, by the way. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been really, I mean, you know, there's just like you said, you made a great point. There's tons and tons of podcasters, but there, but alignment and actually really talking about hard things. We're going into hard things. We're going into things that are uncomfortable and, and things that people don't necessarily want to have real conversations. And that's why I wanted to have so many of these pivotal people in my life first. I wanted to have these people on the show first so we could actually start having these conversations and being able to invite guests back and expand our reach. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it to be part of that. I really do. Yeah. So our final question, Jeremy, um, what is one thing that you want to say or talk about that no one has either asked you or that you want to share? My mind always goes to history, but that's really not valuable to anybody <laughs> right here. You know what, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like my, 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 my favorite book is uh, a book called Ermengarde of Narbonne and the World of the Troubadours. And uh, Ermengarde was a woman from Southern France and during that period of time, this is in the 1200s, during that period of time, in order to like maintain, um, she had become a like a royal person running the area through the man that she married. And then when he passed away, she retained the title. So like people were constantly kind of marry her, constantly trying to like date her and things like that. And she realized that if she ever did that, she would go back to being a queen consort, which means somebody that doesn't have power, somebody that just has a title. So she figured out what she had to do to maintain power and become the longest serving royal in that area. Um, it's just super intriguing to me how like somebody can figure out how to like learn all the rules of something and figure out how to do it and then basically use the rules against all the people that created them. To me, that's, that's kind of interesting. Well, that, I mean, or genius. Yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant because she's like, all right, this is the structure you have to operate in. Okay, I'll continue to make it look like I care about dating people. And, and and so she would like continue like running this whole ruse for like, it was like 50 years. And she was like, she she lived to be nearly 100, um, you know, living in this area of Southern France in the 1200s and, and maintain, you know, hegemony over this entire area, which that, that didn't happen because she would have to get married again and somebody else would, would take the power. Right. 
And the thing that fascinates me so much in talking to younger ones is how I believe Google has made us a little dumber. And so I believe that, you know, they, they always run to these media outlets to figure out how to get this information. And yet this woman from ancient times has figured this out. Not only has she figured it out, but she's figured out to use it for her own benefit and maintain as long as she did, which is exceptional. Yeah, definitely. So I, I don't know how relevant it is, but to me that those type of things are extremely intriguing. And that's whenever somebody asks me, I'm like, well, it wouldn't be interesting to you, but you know. No, I think that's great. And I'm not going to write that name down because my head kind of blew up. So just text, <laughs> <laughs> so just text me the name because I would love to do further research on that. Er- Ermengarde of Narbonne in the World of Distributors is the name of the book. Yeah. Again, text me. <laughs> <laughs> This has been awesome. I can't wait to do this again with you. It's always so fun and exciting and again, highly aligned. And thank you again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I, I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. And, and I frankly think I've read some very interesting books and nobody ever asks me about them. So I really appreciate getting to talk about one of the books I really enjoyed. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit the subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.